Kia ora and welcome to the Stronger Dads Collective podcast, where we aim to help dads be stronger versions of themselves as fathers, people, and in their athletic pursuits. Let's get into today's episode. Kia ora and welcome to episode 25 of the Stronger Dads Collective podcast. Today we have Kurt Baker um, coming to us all the way from the USA. Um, for those of you who don't know Kurt, Kurt is a husband and father of two, just had um, his second very, very recently. Um, he's a professional rugby player and assistant coach for Old Glory DC. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with Kurt or have heard that name before, that'll be because he has represented uh, New Zealand at NZ7s. Uh, I think it's two gold medals in the Commonwealth, a silver medal in the Olympics, so uh, probably a household name for many of you. Uh, the other thing you probably remember about Kurt is a few of his uh, infamous pictures uh, where he celebrated the victories on the shoulders of his teammates. Uh, so if you don't know about those, have a bit of a Google and I'm sure you'll find uh, that trend that he set there. How are you going, Kurt? Yeah, good, thanks, man. How are you? Not too bad. How, how's it going over in the USA? Yeah, it's good, obviously, away from the family, but, um, you know, doing the sport I love, so can't complain. So, yeah, no, it's all good. Yeah, and how long have you been with, because um, it's in Washington, isn't it? Yeah, Washington DC. So, um, only got here uh, January, so sort of six months stint. Um, two, two guaranteed games to go, and then um, back to New Zealand. So, it's pretty short, short lived, but um, all going to plan. Come back. And is it just one, one contract, like one year contract you've got at the moment, or are you planning to come back next year? What's sort of on the table? Yeah, the stage is just one. Um, I suppose once the wash up of the season comes through, we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, initially just the one year. Nice, nice. Is it a bit different over there? Like, what's the rugby like? I spoke um, earlier on in one of my podcasts with Sean Curry, and he went over to Russia um, and was doing some strength and conditioning coaching over there. Like, what's the state of rugby in America like? Because it's it's fully professional and stuff over there, isn't it? Like, it's yeah, it is. It's it's a fully professional league. It's um. Yeah, it's a, I think it's in a really funny place. It, it's um, obviously a big country. There's a, there's a lot of people that play rugby here, but probably um, they haven't fully latched on to the professionalism of it yet. Um, mm. So it's it's probably in the earliest stages, but there's definitely a lot of lot of people in, in the States that are, are really pro-rugby. There's a lot of Americans that have grown up playing rugby and had an interest mm. in rugby, which is, for me, is actually quite surprising. But... Um, they're really loyal to the sport, which which is really cool. So the other people now that are um, either funding or driving the sport to be to be bigger in the states, which is probably scary from um, other countries' perspective. Yeah, well, it's one of those things, eh? Because I remember, um, like, well, I looked at the website, and it's all you know, like American sport is always really well promoted, marketed, like everything's done to a really high standard. And so when I was looking at the website, I'm like, geez, this is like better than you know, what most provinces would look like in terms of the way they market, you know, in New Zealand and sort of how they run all the social and all that stuff. It's pretty, like, you know, it looks really professional. Yeah, I think it's it's influenced, like you say, from from uh, all the other professional sports within the States, which, you know, you could just re- keep revving them off. There's tons of them. So, yeah, um, I think from my perspective, that's the most exciting bit is they're getting influenced by, um, I suppose, way more advanced sports than than what we've ever seen in New Zealand. Yeah, and I guess they know how to do it on that big scale. So when they're trying to like scale something up at this level, it's kind of that's probably quite easy for them because they've got so much knowledge to sort of bounce off and go to. 
um, you know, to, to basically learn from how, how do you grow this and how do you get the publicity and the eyes on? Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's exciting. It's exciting to be a part of. And are there many other Kiwis over in the league? Like any people that you've played with back home that you've bumped into over there? Yeah, it's peppered with Kiwis actually. And reason being, it, um, the season's tying really well with the NPC in New Zealand. So anyone that plays NPC and doesn't pick up Super Rugby is mm-hmm. probably looking to come here in the off season as opposed to to playing club rugby. So um, there's some there's some pretty good players. And, um, Chase Emery from Palmies over here with New York. So run into him a bit, but yeah, I'd say every team has probably three or four minimum Kiwis sort of floating around them, which is cool. Yeah, 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 it is a, it's real interesting because it seems to me like, you know, it's sort of just exploded recently over there and I don't know if that's to do with Sevens becoming an Olympic sport or as you say, there's kind of been people that have been playing it um, historically and then it's kind of, you know, just grown organically from that. But has like, from your perspective, has Sevens being an Olympic sport kind of influenced the money coming in over there or I mean you've only been there since January I'm not sure of your sort of long-term knowledge of that but from your perspective do you think that's had an impact? Having been involved with sevens and seeing the growth in the sevens rugby side from America um, I'd say yeah definitely the Olympics has influenced it but um, the States have actually got the I think it's the 2026 Rugby World Cup here so Uh you know from a 15 side that's huge Um, yeah they actually didn't qualify for the the current World Cup, so I'd say they're chasing their tail away, but for the uh, for the next one. But do, do you get uh, auto qualified? Do you know by, by being the ones hosting it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I should ask the boys. Then I'm not too sure, but um, <laughs> it makes it a little bit niggly as a as a union. But um, you know, I suppose with the Olympics and now the 15s World Cup here, it's going to be pretty big, and um, I think it'll create a lot of interest around rugby and probably just a lot of questions. People are really mm. Um, they're just amazed by the sport of rugby when all they've ever known is American football with pads. Yeah. Um, they actually think rugby players are pretty crazy. So, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's different. It's really different over here. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it's exciting what's coming here. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So um, let, let's just jump back in time. Obviously, this is kind of getting towards the tail end of your career. You um, retired from Sevens last year or New Zealand Sevens last year. What does... What did sort of your journey to get into the sport look like? You know, obviously you grew up in Palmy, you're a Palmy born and bred, but what was your childhood like and kind of how did you end up, I guess, getting into footy and that? I suppose my childhood was probably quite similar, from a sporting sense, it was quite similar to a lot of Kiwi kids. Um, mm. Started rugby when I was five, the, the barefoot stuff, and um, yeah, I like played it all through school and things. And to be fair, I was pretty average until I was about 16 um, and then I sort of grew into my body and realised that I, you know, could run reasonably quick and, um, you know, I, I was lucky I had some good coaches when I was younger that taught me the fundamentals of, of rugby. So, um, yeah, I was, I was lucky left school. I actually worked a job. I worked for my old man as an electrician when I first left school and was in Turbo's Academy um, and, yeah, I, I got my, I think I got my first opportunity as a, I suppose what we call professional rugby player now, um, with the Turbos in 2008, so a couple of years out of school, and I suppose the rest is history, so there's a bit in there, it's been a few months ago since 2008, but um, yeah, I've, I've been bloody lucky to to do what I'd see as my dream job for so long, and um, 
man, it's given me some pretty pretty amazing opportunities from a sporting perspective. But mm. just like just being more worldly and um, people experiences is just yeah. I feel real fortunate that I've I've been able to do what I've done for so long. And let's just wind back to 2006, because as I uh, showed you before the before the show, I had done a little bit of research into the Palmerstonian. So Kurt and I actually went to school um, back in Palmy in 2006. We were in the same year group at Palmy Boys. Um, didn't really, you know, hang out together or know each other. Uh, we we figured out that actually we because we we're trying to figure out did we do the relays together back in the day, and we did. So um, apparently we won by a comfortable margin back in 2006 at the Manawatu Secondary Schools. Um, <laughs> But I pulled out a few excerpts from that um, 2006 Palmerstonian, which is the the yearbook um, for Palmy Boys. So um, the first key excerpt that I pulled out was that uh, Kurt got second in the 200 metres to yours truly. So I just have to have that as my claim to fame because um, I have no Olympic medals or Commonwealth medals. I haven't represented New Zealand at rugby, but uh, I can still take that 2006 200 metre win over the you know Commonwealth Games champion. So I'll claim that one. <laughs> um, no, see, I'll give you that. You can have that. <laughs> it was all downhill from there for me, obviously, in terms of uh, you know rugby or team sports anyway. Um, <laughs> but I pulled out a couple of excerpts that, that was describing you and your player profile from school, and I just sort of wanted to see what you thought about those now. So um, the first one is from the first 11. So Kurt played first 11 cricket and first 15 rugby. Um, so what this was the description. I pulled a little bit out of this for you. So it says, a devastating batsman. He hits the ball hard and a long way, but often gives his wicket away with poor decision-making. What, what do you, how do you respond to that one? Uh, factual. I'd say that's very true. I don't think <laughs> I had the mental application for, um, for cricket. Do you know what the funniest thing is? My um, uh, coaching partner or coach here, um, Josh Sims, was actually one of my coaches through through rep cricket, and his father was off, obviously um, the rector, Mr. Sims. So he's coached me a bit, and he still to this day will repeat that. Um, I'll say reckless would be the word I <laughs> he describe as, and he he doesn't stop reminding me that usually on a weekly basis or tell someone to stop. There was that many, that did go on. It did go on to describe something about that he needs a bit more composure to be and be willing to stay in for the long term or something along those lines. Um, I think so, I played too much backyard cricket. I'd got I'd gone with the six and out approach. <laughs> Just smash it over the fence and you're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then for the first fifteen, this is how they described you. And I think the um, personality bit in here is quite funny because I think it's probably carried through your whole career. Um, it says a confident and lively character. Ability to hit a line hard from the back and runs very good lines and angles. Will need to learn more composure and develop a more analytical approach in his position to further enhance his existing qualities. What do you What do you think of that one? Do you think you developed that? Uh, yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah, um, <laughs> probably again, pretty accurate, really. Um, it probably just sums up being a what seventeen, eighteen year old um, schoolboy. You've bit of composure and um <laughs> you know i'd say again reasonably accurate eh? but they were quite funny and i sort of think like for me that's like that typical boys high approach like you know they're giving you yeah. the good stuff but it's you're never like you know you're never you're never all the way there there's something to work on like i kind of i read those quotes and i looked through a few of the other ones because you had a few of um a few other good players as well um in that 2006 team um, i think there was aaron cruden um obviously andre taylor as well were there any others that went on to Representative honours? 
No, nah, the year before we had Headley Parks, who went on to mm. play for Wales. So, um, there's some pretty good players roll through Palmy Boys. Yeah. It's, uh, I feel like it's still a bit of a factory for rugby players. And, well, it's obviously a um, reason for Big City, so you'd expect some half-decent footy players to roll through it. So, mm. yeah, yeah we're, I, we're a good team there, yeah? I couldn't, I couldn't help but look back at a couple of those and just see how they described you back then. I thought it was uh, just a bit, a bit funny yeah. to have a look at. Um, but for me, as a, as a Turbos fan, one of the memories I have is that after, um, was it 09, you shot off and went to Taranaki. Um, and I remember thinking, what the hell? Like, he's born and raised here. Come on, man. Like, so so probably my brother would, would like me to ask, you know, why did you go to Taranaki? They're like the arch rivals um, of Manawatu in terms of, you know, that, that sister province right next door. Um, yeah. what, what, what sort of spurred that move and took you there? For me, at the time, the biggest reason was um, there was already someone that was established at fullback, which is where I wanted to play. Um, in the turbos and mm. at that time I didn't see myself as being um well I feel like the conversations at the time weren't leading me to think that that following year I would um be the starting fullback and Taranaki sort of came to me and um were really positive and said you know do you want to come over and I knew there was a shortage of a fullback there so for me it was a it was probably more opportunity than anything else um yeah yeah I still love Manor too I'm passionate about coming better um, as a province but it's just I, I think that's probably the reality of professional sport and at, at that stage it was becoming more professional and yeah sometimes got to take opportunities when they arise and um, to be honest it's, it's probably um, you know I'd never regret that decision it worked really well for me yeah um, I know there was a lot of uh, frustrated people in, in men or two <laughs> but um, you know people make decisions for for different reasons and you know, that was pretty much my decision was reality was on I wanted to play rugby at that mm -hmm. level and I thought there was a better opportunity there at the time and I guess yeah with, with that sort of thing being a competitor as well right you don't want to be just sitting on the bench each week you know you kind of want to have that opportunity to run out and actually be you know on the field doing something yeah and I think I like yeah looking back I was I was young and I had like it's probably like those comments you know I was uh, pretty determined of, of what I wanted um, and that was to be playing right now which you know whether i was right or wrong don't know but um i was lucky it worked out all right for me yeah yeah and i mean taranaki did pretty well didn't they they probably did a bit yeah, better than one or two i'd say over some of those yeah the, i think the year men or two won the championship we won the um the premiership which potentially maybe i don't know if it was the only time taranaki have done that but mm. had the ranfley shield for a period of time as well so it was probably it was tasman a in the final that one yeah it? it was yeah so we um yeah it was probably the glory days of of, of the neck if you compared it to well other than the, when the slaters and the barretts were there but um, yeah it, it was a pretty special time for me um as i was still pretty young but to, to be a part of a successful team was cool yeah yeah definitely it's, it's one of those things that you sort of i don't know you can look back and think oh, i wonder what would have happened if i'd stayed at one or two would i have had the same you know opportunities would i've been able to show my talent as much because when did you break into the NZ Sevens? That was why you were still in Manawatu, was it? Uh, yeah, it was. Um, it was the year before I, I left. So, yeah, um, I can almost guarantee that had I stayed in Manawatu with the players that were there and um, that have gone on to be some of the greatest, well, one of the greatest All Blacks ever, and Aaron Smith was there. So um, I probably would have been all right with uh, the players around me. But, um, yeah, so I think 2000 and 
to be honest, I couldn't tell you. I, I had my first. I think the end of two thousand and eight with New Zealand sevens, and I think I got injured in my in my debut tournament. I got injured in the warm up, so I didn't actually play. So um, I didn't didn't play again till two thousand and nine, which was after yeah. um, I think maybe left me or two. And then how did how did that kind of progress? Because obviously there was the Commonwealth Games. Was that two thousand and ten? The Delhi one was it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not too. I'm not too good on the um, recalling things, but <laughs> yeah, I think maybe I'd had a, a full season um, before leading into that, and then yeah, Delhi Com Games was 2010, which, from memory, looking back, I think it was a bit of a shambles as an organisation of that group Commonwealth Games. But um, there was plenty of stuff I, I think I, in the news um, leading up yeah, to that Commonwealth yeah. Games about the state of the accommodation, all these sort of pictures and stuff coming up and. Um, yeah, yeah, it didn't I, look I like the, the glory com games that you'd want to go to. Nah, nah I haven't had much luck with um, events like that. They were obviously Tokyo with COVID, so um, yeah, maybe I'm a bit cursed in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> At least you got the gold medal, though. That's kind of, you know, the, yeah. the experiences are one thing, but the gold medal, you know, you'll have that as well forever. So maybe you can't have them yeah, both. Yeah, right. <laughs> nah, you can't everything, eh? So with, with your, like... Um, you know, position in the sevens team and that sort of thing. I know that you were there during that sort of Gordon Titchens era. And I've read, you know, a whole lot about Titchens as a coach and all of those sorts of things. And I know, you know, the ending of that relationship with you and you and Titch, there was a bit, little bit of stuff there. But in those sort of early days as a young fella coming into that team, because you would have only been probably 20 years old, I'd say, when you were when you first broke through into that side. Yeah. Like, how was that? Because obviously he's known for being a real, you know, hard man with fitness. You've got to have the, you know, highest beat test scores. Is all that stuff accurate? Like, do you remember what it was like in those early days under Titchens with the, the was there pressure for fitness? Like, were you already smashing all that? Like, what was that kind of like? Yeah, it was probably exactly how it's um, portrayed uh, to everyone else. It was pretty ruthless environment. Um, mm. And like, like you say, Say uh, leading into Rio, Titch and I didn't see eye to eye for various reasons. But mm. there's one thing I will say: is he taught me a, a lot of things that um, you know probably still have meant that I still do what I do for a job today, which is hard work. Um, yeah, for me, it's the fundamentals of sport. Really, it was just work as hard as you possibly can. And then I suppose there wasn't too much skill taught when he was the coach. Was probably mm. it's been the, the downfall, but. Um, the hard work piece was, yeah, you needed it because his trainings and even looking back now, if, if our, well, say I was still at the sevens, but then mm. we had to do the same stuff now. I'm not sure our bodies would hold up. It was, um, <laughs> it's pretty ruthless stuff. But What, what was that training like? I, what it was. Those stories that I remember they were talking about when you when everyone would come together initially after selection and they'd come to the, like, you know, Rugby Institute or whatever it was called back then, um, and that there'd be like this week and you'd start the week and basically if you didn't hit a score on the on the beep test and that was like the test if I remember correctly, basically your place is gone. Like is that was that how it was? Like yeah, he, and how hard were those weeks? Did. Do you have any memories of those weeks? Yeah, I do. Um Titch was real big on whatever you say, I think it's thirteen was his um his baseline. If you didn't make thirteen, basically you had to be a freak of an athlete to get away with. Um, still being able to travel and you know he set that standard and some some of you know really good rugby players that have gone on to be exceptional rugby players didn't make it for that reason but um, he stuck to what he believed in and um, it scared the living shit out of everyone 
it up. So basically, I think we a normal we used to just go on a week camp before he'd name the team. So you turn up the Monday, you it was like a testing morning. So you do a forty meter sprint, obviously trying to max speed, and it was all timed, and you're all measured against each other. So everyone's going balls to the wall, and then I think you had a fifteen minute break. You do a phosphate decrement, which was uh, 10 40 meter sprints. Your first sprint had to be within a certain percentage of what your your uh, 40 meter time was, and if it wasn't, then it didn't count. And then oh, so, so that making sure your first one is actually pretty you know, much, max yeah. effort. So if you yeah. if, if you couldn't good, game it, you need a, yeah, you could have tried to if you did a half um, half pie 40 meter sprint, but that's probably still know that from the previous camp anyway. So. <laughs> So you do 10 of them, um, you'd go every 30 seconds. So you've got a background in uh, mathematics. Yeah. It's, it's pretty brutal on the um, on the lactic acid. And then again, 15 minute break and you go straight into a, a beat test. So it covered all parts of, I suppose, being a sevens athlete. Um, but there's a lot of sleeping in between trainings with it. You basically <laughs> get back in the scratcher. 15 minutes before the next meeting would um, get out of bed and start again. So it was good times. It was, um, yeah, it was tough, but man, it was, uh, you know, I, I think it built, built a lot of resilience in me and, and probably a lot of um, rugby players within New Zealand through that, that period of time. And do you think it had an impact on like the team culture as well? Cause you're having to kind of like survive this as a team. I think a hundred percent it did. Um, you know, we, Sometimes you look back and yeah, we acted like little children parents, <laughs> but it was it, it built a culture within us um, as players that you know we we were probably a lot tighter than we realised because we'd gone to some pretty dark places as a group together, which you know again um, testament to Titch, he, he knew what he he was building probably deep down. Yeah, yeah, I think I remember some story. It might have been in Jonah Lomu's um, like autobiography or whatever it was about sneaking off to KFC or something like that and he got caught um, or they or they found out somehow like and, and there was some sort of a punishment or issue with that like was it kind of like that like if you sort of you know you couldn't eat certain things and there was like consequences or punishments was it kind of was that side oh, of it all it accurate as well like that. yeah yeah really yeah. accurate um he had a tendency to turn up um just at the right place at the right time like you know the boys sneak out for say an ice cream or something he just happened to walk around that corner. And I don't know whether he'd freaking had a um, private investigator or what, but the amount of times <laughs> it happened and brought dudes out, it blew my mind. So, um, yeah. It, the yeah boys do you have any stories just, of that? Like anyone sort of not realising he was coming? or? Uh, I think she, I, I recall Shu and Stowers um, being caught out once. I think it was with an ice cream, but... Um, yeah, there's a lot he didn't catch. You obviously only hear the stories where he caught people, but um, yeah, I suppose as, as players or athletes, it was a uh, it was our outlet was to to go and eat bad. It was like when your parents tell you not to do something or your school yeah. do something, you almost wanted to do it more. Whereas like, now, yeah, the, the, yeah. The don't don't, don't think about the white rabbit type thing, and then what are you thinking about? You're thinking about a white rabbit, <laughs> yeah. so you're always thinking about K fry exactly. or Maccas or whatever you can't have. <laughs> yeah. Whereas now we had, a, a, you know, a current or the last regime was, and um, we had probably more of a free reign, and we actually were less inclined to to do that. So, probably a good life life lesson um, as a parent. I was going <laughs> to say that's almost like a, 
a parenting lesson i give them a bit of you know ability to choose and that sort of stuff and they'll soon figure out that you know it's not as good <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or they don't feel as good after it yeah bang on so with, with the coaches like just sort of thinking i know probably going to be a bit piecemeal here but i kind of just go with go with the flow but as i mentioned to you with those coaches are there any sort of like specific um coaches that you feel like you learned some real key lessons from along the way that you sort of still remember to this day because obviously you've been going since 08 that's 15 years um there's probably been a lot of different coaches that have had input to you like are there any that stick out to be honest all like all the coaches i've had um there's been certain things with each of them that i reckon i can vividly remember like i think of um dave rennie was sort of like encouraged to to take risks i, I suppose mm. um as a coach um obviously the touch stuff taught me to to work hard um probably taught me resilience colin cooper was he was our taranaki coach when i was there he he was um more of the care side as mm. a coach um and had like jamie joseph at the hollanders and he was really old school um do it by the book um just hard nosed and yeah i'd yeah. say old school and then you know i spent a lot of time recently with clark laylor at, at um, more black sevens and he was probably more around the care side but he was very similar to to me as a person i think he's real passionate so the passion for him um you know i i feel like that was quite similar to me as a person so yeah yeah it's funny like these little parts of every coach I've had that, you know, whether you like it or not, they I feel like they still mould you into to what you are. It's not like they're not just rugby coaches; they're almost like people coaches in a way. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's that's a real don't like as yeah. a person. What's that? Sorry. And you work out what you sort of do and don't like as a person through learning through people like that, which yeah, you know, I think it's pretty cool. There's a cool thing about sport. And I guess that's one of the benefits you've probably had with playing for a few different provinces and a few different super sides is you've probably been exposed to sort of a whole lot of different methods, you know, and ways of doing things. In the sevens environment, you would have only had two coaches though, eh, in terms of NZ level. Is that right? Yeah. And like, yeah. obviously we had other coaches around. Um, yeah. Titch in that part. Yeah. As head coaches, yeah. I only had Titch and, and Clark Laidlaw, who's um, always just handed in. He's off to the Hurricanes, but um, yeah, the yeah, other two right. had probably the most to do with in that environment. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite interesting, eh? Because like we think of sport sometimes and just think of it as the performance aspect, but like from listening to you talk about each of those coaches, there's kind of a whole lot more to what they're doing. Um, they're like it's all good and well to think, oh, yeah, how do we have the best tactics or the best strategies or whatever on the field? But it's actually how do you get the most out of people and how do you pull out, you know, that personality stuff to kind of gel the team and make it work um is that something you've sort of tried to implement in your current role like where you've got that bit of assistant coaching role have you been is there anything you've kind of tried to apply with that lens i know you said you're more more player than coach but you are a player coach yeah i think the biggest thing i've learned from all of them is like you say is learning people mm. um at the end of the day yeah it's sport but like it is just people um yeah and all of them have got their own way of um i suppose like communicating with people or getting people to do what they want um yeah so that's probably been my learning and even like josh sims who i'm with here at the moment he he's big on the people side as well and mm. i think the 
the sooner you can understand people in a sporting environment or probably just any environment, um, the better off you become because, you know, it's just the world. Eh? It's, it's just people. Yeah, it's quite funny because, eh? I've you know, as we discussed before, I've sort of done a few different roles recently and it is quite funny how much everything kind of comes back. Like one of the big things I always think about is that ability to communicate and like communicate effectively so that people a, you're saying something to the person, but they're actually hearing what you're trying to tell them, you know, because we all kind of interpret yeah. the way someone speaks or the way someone says something a little bit differently. But it doesn't matter whether you're working, you know, as a lecturer or if you're in the health system or whatever it might have been that I've been doing. Like, it's that it's exactly the same, right? Regardless of if it's sport, work, whatever, people are all interacting. We're relational creatures. Like, it's kind of how do you how do you do that effectively is going to have the best outcome regardless of what you're doing. Yeah, I totally agree. I reckon it's bang on, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so um, one of the other things that I sort of, um, I listened to a couple of podcasts or the the Waddle Lab podcast and obviously from following you through the years, um, when you're on the field, you're quite different to the guy that I'm talking to uh, at the moment or you have been. And there were a couple of quotes that I pulled out of um, one of those episodes. You said something like, we're not paid to be liked um, and what goes on the field stays on the field. Like, you know, you don't take that stuff off um how, how has that kind of manifested itself for you on the field because i know you've gone into a trouble a couple of times with that like what what does that look like for you and who has occurred on the field versus off the field and how have you kind of managed that over the last 15 years yeah good question um i think a lot of it stemmed from yeah like you say extremely competitive um but i sort of at the same time i've always thought I'm there to do one thing. Like I, I play sport, well, I've played rugby to win, and mm-hmm. you know I'm. Um, I suppose sometimes with that comes a part that people, well, com- uh, my competitors don't don't like. But um, at the end of the day, I've always said I leave it on the field. I've got this thing in my head, and I've always said it like when I cross the white lines, whatever happens in there, all good. But as long as I when I cross back. Um, you know, I can shake someone's hand or have a beer. There'll be the odd one where it's just gone a little bit too far and then you're like, oh, no, it's, that's too much. But uh, I always look at Dane Coles and I, I look at him and think he's probably very similar to me. He's, he's a really competitive person. And and people, they get make judgment on you based on what they see on TV or, um, yeah. you know, within the arena or whatever it is. And um, I, I just feel like people have made that judgment um, about me, which... You know, fair play them. I, I still look at it as they're supporting our sport, so it, um, it's a positive. Um, but yeah, do, I, do, I do you do you use it on purpose to get into other people's heads as well when you're on the field? Like, is that is that part of it that you're kind of like some of the lippy stuff is actually just to try and get someone sort of put out, you know, so that you can then take advantage of that, or is it more just you're being competitive and it's kind of how that manifests itself? I think, yeah, I think it's more how I, I never have a, put it this way, I never have a plan to go out and chip someone. It just sort of flows, which I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, I've seen it many a time. It gets on the wrong side of people and um, they lose a call, which I suppose you could look at as a competitive advantage, but um, I don't ever write down a plan pre-game to attack something. <laughs> Going to say this to this guy. Like <laughs> nah. nah. Yeah. I, honestly, I think comes back to me just being super competitive and um you know, I'll, I'll do most of anything to win really um it's been my main driver as an athlete or rugby player for since i've, I've been doing it professionally and um you know 
suppose there's probably some things I'd say I've said that I'm not proud of, but it's just part <laughs> of it, eh? <laughs> Do you have any like recollections of anyone taking it the wrong way and like getting, you know, it gets under their skin and then they sort of just almost refuse to speak to you after? Like, is that ever blown up or not? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It happens a lot. Um, yeah. It's happened with guys that I've, I, I know well, but um, yeah, same thing. They, they usually come around, they, they can. <laughs> I think if it's guys that I know, they they understand who I am as a person and um, they get over it eventually. Eh? <laughs> Good things take time. Yeah, it's one of those things like, um, yeah, yeah. when you're on the field, it is something like you are sort of a different, you know, you've almost got to be a different person though because you are a competitor in that sense, right? And I think as you said, you know, we're not paid to be liked, you're paid to try and win, um, which... I mean, as a professional rugby player, it doesn't matter what someone thinks of you on the field. Like, and as you, I think you mentioned there, right? When you're off the field, obviously that's not who you want to be um, necessarily. But you know, that might be the perception someone has because they've seen the competitive side of Kurt rather than you know who you actually are as a person. Yeah, and no, honestly, if I, I think I'd be really concerned as a person, and I'd be disappointed and probably a bit gutted if people met me day to day and thought the same thing. Um, mm. But I'd like to think that the majority wouldn't. Um, yeah, I'm a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, mate, because you're on the Strongest Dads podcast, so we've got to make sure there are good people on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Um, so one of the other things as well is jockey. Um, I'm, I'm actually wearing my jockeys today, but you've had a contract with jockey. Have you still got that? And, like, one of the things I was sort of thinking is, as a pro rugby player, like, you know, you keep in pretty good shape. So... That, that keeps itself pretty easy. How does that kind of look like going forward for you now that you're thinking, right, I'm winding down a bit. Um, is is there any kind of sort of thought process of how am I going to keep fit after I actually, you know, it might not be in the next few years, but once this sort of goes, what have you sort of been thinking of that? Yeah, I um, the jockey thing came about because I was with All Black Seven, so they have a deal where they have to have Sevens players in all black, so that's sort of how that came about. It wasn't because I was a specimen or anything like that. <laughs> they might for a dead pod. That's that might have been the track they went down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I look. I think as I've got older, I've, I, I think being active is now part of my DNA. I'm not sure mm-hmm. I could just you know when I finish. I don't think I could sit around. Um, I'm pretty lucky. My wife's sort of into multi sport and um, ultra marathons and things. So. The likelihood of me sitting around on the couch and blowing out is going to probably them. I'll yeah. probably reduce the amount, amount of gym that I do. But, um, yeah, I, I've always sort of said to her, once I'm done with rugby, I'll, um, I'd love to team up with her and get into coast-to-coast and, and things like that because I know that's her passion. Um, yeah. So, yeah, all, all going to plan, you know, that, that'll be the they'll, they'll be the things that I'd, I'll do when I finish rugby to, to stay active, which, you know, it's, it's just it's a lot different to what I know, but, at the same time, the small parts that I have done, um, I've really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. So do you enjoy that endurance side? Because, I mean, you've you've typically been like, you know, sevens is pretty high intensity at short duration, but you've got to be bloody fit. Like, do you enjoy the longer stuff? Like you mentioned coast-to-coast type thing. Have you done anything like that um, outside of your training, no, like long-distance running or anything? Nah, and, no, I haven't. And I suppose it's, it's my wife has led me down that path. I think my knees usually get a bit sore in the longer stuff, so that could be my biggest challenge. Um, but at the same time, I, I just think it's, uh, well, yeah, I've always done short and hard stuff. So, 
maybe you know when you when I come to that stage, it, it will be nice to have a bit of a change and I suppose teach your body something different. Um, everyone knows science says if you go low and slow running, uh, you're way, way more likely to stay stay a bit leaner. So it might be better for me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you've spent a bit of time on the bike though, haven't you? When you've had some injuries over the years, like do you do you, do you enjoy the bike side or is that kind of a I had to do it to keep myself fit? Yeah, I think it's a bit of that. I yeah. like those comments said my attention span doesn't really allow it for an extended period of time. So um, it'll test me, but um, at the same time, it's yeah, like I, I think I'll enjoy it. It's just uh, yeah, I might put a cap on how long I go for on some of these things. <laughs> you should jump on the bike back and go around Lake Topo and see how you get on. Oh, I don't know if the quads would handle it, but I'll give it a crack. <laughs> Cool, man. I mean, so let's just um, rewind back to meeting your wife. Obviously, you've you've kind of been in a professional sport environment for what fifteen years, basically straight. How do you manage with all of the travel and all of that stuff? Like, you've obviously met your wife and managed to, you know, you got married, had a couple of kids in the last few years of the career. How did that kind of come about? Because it must be hard as a as a single lad. Well, not hard as a single lad, but you know what I mean. Like, you're going around the place and you're not really stuck in one home base for very long. Um, yeah, yeah, how, how did that happen? That's probably been the biggest challenge is like you're never in one place at one time. And well, even right now, I've, my kids and wife are back home and I'm here, which is pretty tough. But mm. um, again, it's probably just you come to learn that's just the life that we live. And um, yeah, it was probably, you know, when I met my wife, it was good timing and, um, you know, she was really to um, stop doing what she was doing so um, you know we didn't even live in the same city so it's worked out pretty well and um, you know she's come from a sporting background so kind of understands it um, probably a bit better than most which you know I'm pretty grateful for Um, but yeah it definitely doesn't make it any easier Um, and that's a perfect example of it it's just you know it's, it's tough when you've well once you have kids I think you're your priorities sort of um, change a wee bit and, mm. you, you know, um, it's just a bit different. So so how did, um, how's that sort of come about then? Because And how have you managed that, I guess? Because you had, how old's your oldest? Yeah, so our daughter's two and a, two and a half, I'd say. Yeah. And our son's five weeks old, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it is hard. It's it's really hard. Um, it's probably harder knowing that I'm not there to help my wife when she probably needs it the most. Um, anyone that's had newborns and especially newborn toddler cruising around at the same time um, would understand it. it is pretty tough. So yeah, that's that's probably the hardest bit. But I, I suppose you you're lucky when you've got you know family and, mm-hmm. and friends understand that. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, that we are vulnerable and probably need some help sometimes. So we're really lucky with the people around us that, um, yeah, have definitely helped us in the in the last week while anyway, and, and even with our daughter, we're the same. Yeah. I think yeah. when our daughter was two or three, I, that was when COVID was around. So we, we were away for three months with the Olympics, so with all the um, self-isolation and stuff. So it's, it's not new to us as a family, but it definitely doesn't make it easier. It's quite different, eh? like, you know, I, I'm sort of thinking of myself last year when I was traveling down to Wellington and working overnight there a couple of times. And, you know, even that was kind of 
you know, felt like I wasn't being very helpful, <laughs> you know, which is probably yeah. the exact feeling you're describing, but you're, you're the other side of the world, <laughs> which is yeah, a little bit different to be able to cruise home, you know, in two hours. So yeah. um, it's a bit different. How has that kind of changed your approach with your training and stuff? Like, have you been able to, over these last few years, because you've still been playing, you know, the international level, obviously things, as you say, bit different with COVID, probably not quite as much travel or tournaments as there were. But how did you find that whole aspect of being a professional athlete while managing, you know, being a new dad as well? What was that like at the start? Um, I think, like I was saying, we were away for three months in the early stages of our, um, when our, our daughter was born. So, um, you know, I probably didn't, I, I didn't have to learn doing it um, there and then. I was, I was away, separated yeah. from it. But um, I suppose you just learn to prioritise better. Um, you know, and it puts it in perspective. Like after seeing what your wife goes through, through birth, yeah. through being a mum, feeding in the middle of the night, you're like, well, when everyone's having a nap in the day, it's probably not that bad if I'm a bit tired, but still have to go and do a little bit of training. Um, I've just learned to fit it in around um, around the day, and you probably just become more efficient when you train instead of. You know, can't shoot off for two hours or whatever it is now. It's just, um, you got to pump it out and, and get back to the real world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's so true. Eh? Like, you kind of have to be a bit opportunistic. Like, oh, everyone's having a bit of downtime now. I can fit a half hour, 45 minute session in. Like, let's go. Um, yeah. <laughs> have you still had a lot of, because you were based in Papamore, eh? When you're yes. in New Zealand. Yeah. And so, is that where the NZ Sevens team has been based during your later years? Has that been like a consistent training ground for them? Because I think is it Scott Curry and stuff are based up there as well, if I remember correctly from talking with Sean. Yeah. So basically, once they, I think once it became an Olympic sport, New Zealand Rugby decided to centralise the program, which meant yeah. all the players live at one place uh, all year round. Yeah. So I could think of worse places to be based, to be honest. And now we call half a mile home. Um, I've got no real complaints about it. So, uh, pretty, pretty lucky to be close to the beach in a city. So, yeah, 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 definitely. I think it's a, it's one of those places. That my in-laws are up there, up in Bethlehem. So, um, you know, we kind of try and get up there as often as we can, just because the weather tends to beat Palmy um, fairly, fairly yeah. easily, as you'd imagine. Um, especially for for the yeah. warmth anyway. Although sometimes I, I go up there, it feels like every time I go up there, it's bloody raining. But that that might just be my timing. I think. Yeah, I think you might have fair timing. It's, well, yeah, it's, it's usually pretty good there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I guess the the other sort of thing for me as well is looking back on your career as a whole, now that you're, you know, you've stepped back from the seven side of things, you're still doing some provincial stuff and some 15 stuff. From your perspective, like just looking at it, at it as a rugby player, do you prefer one of those games over the other, 15s versus sevens? Honestly, don't know if I do. Um, there's parts of each that I, I, I really love. Like, you know, obviously the majority of my rugby's probably been with All Black Sevens. Um, mm. And it's given me amazing opportunities to travel the world. Um, you know, it's a pretty cutthroat sport around consequence. And if you make a mistake, you pretty much cost you or your team. So um, that side of Sevens I really love. But... Um, yeah, there's also a side of 15s that now that I'm back in there, I've, you know, I've found a, my love for the game again, as in the 15s game. So, yeah, um, I suppose it's like anything, pros and cons to, to each environment and, and different things. But, 
I suppose what both of them have given me is, like I said earlier, is just like amazing opportunities and far out off travel some pretty epic places through sport. Um, yeah. And both 15s and 7s. So you know, that, that is the one thing that both have given me. Yeah, yeah. And is there any like um, specific moments when you look back on your career? Obviously, the LA win last year, because that was in your 50th tournament, wasn't it? Yeah. Like that must be something pretty special. But are there any other kind of like highlights or memories from your career that you sort of stick out as some big, big moments for you or meaningful for you? Yeah, to be honest, the LA one is, is probably up there. And only reason it's up there is, um, yeah, like it was my 50th, I'd had a bit of an average run that year. I wasn't sort of playing as much as I would have liked. Um, I, f- I feel like... Yeah, it, it was just, it was everything worked well. I'd had a real tough run through injury and, um, you know, to come back and do it in my 50th tournament um, in LA, was it was really cool. Um, but yeah, again, I've been really lucky to have some pretty cool memories through, through sevens. Um, probably the the Olympics, even though we won silver, um, my, again, my run into it was freaking awful. I <laughs> rolled my ankle two days, oh, I don't know, captain's run before the last one before they selected the the team and i hadn't played a lot of sevens leading into it so um yeah the manner uh icing that i did two days before that team was <laughs> named so i could play the last day and um just hope that i made it and then obviously to go and and having missed out of on rio um in the titch era was um you know it was probably it just Proved to me that if I stuck, if you stick to something, then sometimes things do go your way. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, again, like I said before, I'm all about winning, and we didn't win, so it was very like for me, it was really disappointing. But um, when you look at big picture, they, like those two probably stand out to me, just probably more from a, a life and a personal um, perspective. Yeah, yeah. And was was there any like? Can you remember back to that first being named in the NZ Sevens team? Like, what was what was that like for a young Kiwi guy that loves his rugby? Like, you know, getting named in a national representative side. Can you remember back to that? I can vaguely remember. Um, I remember it was Queenstown Sevens, and um, I, I remember I was over the moon. I I grew up watching Hong Kong Sevens. I remember I used to stay up. Like when I was young, I used to stay up in the middle of oh, whatever time it used to be and used to watch. And I, I idolised Christian Cullen. And I, yeah. I still remember um, that year Christian Cullen went mental at um, Hong Kong Sevens. I, I think he scored a stupid amount of tries, like maybe 15. And um, yeah, to, to sort of like have, have the opportunity to maybe to follow that path. I, I remember mm. I was really stoked and I'd never sort of made a or made, I've been called into the New Zealand the 20s prior to that but it was my first real um, taste of you know New Zealand rugby and yeah it was, it was a pretty exciting time I was only sort of 19 and 20 at the time so yeah um, back then that was not that common to be playing professional sport yeah yeah definitely that's that's probably the other thing that's changed a whole bunch over your time as well I eh? like I imagine what sevens you know professionalism looked like back in 2010 versus what it looked like in 2022. Those are probably two very, very different um, experiences or teams to be part of just, you know, in that sort of management and the way it's operated. Has, has that kind of been something yeah. you've observed? Yeah, just like, I think the dynamic of, of rugby in New Zealand's changes. Oh, it's a professional era. It's just 
there's, it's ever evolving. Um, so yeah, if you look, if you compare the two environments, the two ways we train, the two lifestyles that we run, um, they probably polar opposite, and yeah. you probably say the same in fifteen years time when you look back on this current era. Yeah. But it's just that sport, eh? it just it, it evolves so quickly. Yeah, yeah. Did the oh, this is probably I don't know if you're allowed to answer this question, but did the pay change much in that time frame, like for an NZ Sevens player? Because obviously, 2010 Sevens looked quite different to what it does in 2022, being Olympic sport and that. Like, has it actually influenced and made it more lucrative for players to stay as a Sevens player, as opposed to back in the day where you'd probably be really pushing to try and pick up a super contract? And you know, like that probably happened quite a bit, right? You'd see the big names pop up back in the day they'd pop up for the big tournaments and then they'd go back to their super franchises. Whereas now it seems like people yeah. are actually able to stay in sevens. Like, is it like, is that professionalism also carried over to make it actually financially viable for players to do that? Yeah, I think definitely now since the Olympics came in sevens, um, you know, are paid better than they were when I started. Um, yeah. And, you know, some people can do it as like you know, my latter parts were sevens, that was solely all I did. I was a seven specialist. Um yeah. and like you say, yeah, the early days when I um first made sevens, it was more fifteens players would come back and play sevens. But yeah. I think just the way the sport evolved meant that you can't jump between the two now. It was it's actually become really hard physically to to jump between the two. Like the demands on your body as a sevens player, yeah, it's it's broken a fair few that have tried to come back. So I, I presume that's why um, it's gone down the path of being more specialised. You'll still, still see the odd one jump back to NBC and then, mm -hmm. but um, it is a lot more specialised, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's sort of one of the things I sort of observed, you know, over my time as a fan is just the names that you see on the seven circuit kind of tend to stay there now, whereas it used to be a little bit more back and forth and you'd have people coming in and taking other people's yeah. spots and you always felt a bit like ripped off almost for some of those sevens boys that lost their spots to those big names. Um, and I guess that still happens yeah. a little bit near the Olympics. You know, they try and pull in some of those other players potentially if they can, um, which must make it really hard when you've been, you know, laboring away, especially back in the day in Titchens camps, getting through those and then you lose your spot because, you know, a big name <laughs> decides to come across and have a go at sevens to get to the Commonwealth or whatever. Yeah. I, the way I always looked at it was it wasn't my right, you know, if I was in the sevens environment, it wasn't my right to go to those tournaments. I still had to earn it just like everyone else. And I just looked at it as a, as a new challenge if, you know, um, Super Rugby or All Black Boys came back. It was like, well, it's just another challenge that, you know, it's probably going to make you better for it anyway. So, yeah, yeah make you make it work harder for your spot. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not a given, yeah. eh? It's not right to have that, that position. Yeah, yeah. Just because someone hasn't chosen to be on the, you know, playing in that level, yeah. and then they choose to come across. It's kind of like, well, actually, they have just as much, you know, if they're the better player, that's better for the team. So therefore, they should be taken. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And if, if yeah. you're, you know, if you're a high level athlete and you're looking at it from a team perspective, that makes sense. It's more if you're looking at it from your individual, like, oh man, I've I've been working hard all year and I've been doing well, but. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. Um, was there anything else you kind of wanted to? wanted to add before we get into these final three i know we're up around uh how long i tried to keep you for so just just double checking was there anything you wanted to cover off before we get into the last three no man i think you've kind of covered everything you said you were going to anyway so cool cool man oh one one other yeah. thing is i i hear you're you were or you are a bit of a punter is that still correct no probably less than i learned in my early stages of rugby we um had a bit more spare time back then so 
Not so much now. Um, heavy old devil, but nah, nah, not really. So, so no hot tips for my brother. He he loves the horses. Uh. <laughs> oh, really? nah, nah. I'm out of the loop. I'm in the states. I don't even know the have horses. Here. I know the have horses. Uh, <laughs> yeah, nah, I'm no good to him. Okay, no, no, no hot tips to get him through on a multi or anything. Then that's all right. He he, nah, nah. he he needs to be told not to put as much on anyway. There was a funny um thing that came out about someone uh, i think it was a michael jordan clip that he sent me the other week and he's like i'm not addicted to gambling like i just enjoy it if i was addicted i wouldn't have you know wouldn't have a house or a wife anymore and i'm like dave like don't don't start getting on that bandwagon mate <laughs> it's justifying <laughs> yeah trying to make himself feel better about his habit i think he does he's pretty yeah. pretty well mate you know keeps it in line but anyways thought thought i'd see yeah, if there was any hot tips but i think that's good mate you've learned nah, and that's a good lesson to pass on yeah i've got another lesson i've learned yeah <laughs> awesome man so let's jump into those um final three that i've got for you there and um the first one that we have is one key parenting tip or a word of advice for new dad so i'm thinking someone in their first few years of being a dad i think for me it's been time um and like i mean time is in time with your kids your wife your um you think is uh, like a perfect example is now like I would love to give my time and I can't. So mm -hmm. um, my understanding of parenting is, you know, in our current world where it's it's pretty fast moving, I think time is probably the most important thing we can give give our kids. It's not the tangible things. Like that's um, one thing that I suppose everyone can get if they if they work enough to get it there. I guess that's probably quite um, a unique perspective from you as well, right? Because you, almost because of the nature of your work, you're forced to be, apart so probably for you when you're actually able to be there like that's probably quite special for you because it's like you know you're like i've been away i just want to come in and focus you know on the family on the kids like it's different to being there all the time in a way because you'll almost appreciate it a bit more would, would that be yeah i think that's that is fair but um you know i think even if i was there and i was working at a normal job I, th I think that'd be one thing I'd, I'd still try and stay true to like that's mm. one thing my wife and I always talk about is like you know you can have all the all the things or money in the world but like time I think will be what influences your children to be hopefully good people and um you know to one day love you as parents yeah yeah that's cool man um the second one that we have there is the most helpful new habit or you know something new you've implemented into your routine uh, within the last year. It doesn't have to be parenting or training related. It could be kind of anything. I think yeah, like uh, my favourite one has been our our morning family routine. So mm. um, our daughter's be two, so in the morning she'll still get up and have have milk, and then um, even before I left, um, you know, I was only for ten days before our. our sorry after our boy was born but in the morning we'd always get up um all of us would sit in bed my wife and i'd have coffee and you mm. know that was kind of like our little family time before i suppose in current world again it's pretty hectic so before so it was probably like a yeah having that little routine for us i think it's quite a special time because we get to just you know be together as us so yeah it's probably it's like a routine but um I suppose like a little family routine there. And everyone loves coffee, so well, most people anyway. 100%, mate. <laughs> 
Cool. And then the last one there was, is there any book or podcast recommendations? And it could be both um, that you'd have that you've kind of found helpful or insightful. Yeah, I, the podcast I'd say is that Water Lad that you were talking about before. Um, I actually find it really insightful listening to other um, people in my position. Like, you know, a lot of them are ex-athletes, so it's good. And um, obviously having played with James, yeah. um, it's always nice seeing people that you know doing things like that. But Plenty of good stories that, on there too, to be honest. Yeah, there is. Yeah. And it doesn't... Um, yeah, it doesn't just go, always head down one path. Is everyone's got a different a different angle, which is cool. Um, and then book, I'm not a massive book reader, but one book I really struggled to put down was it's called Relentless uh, mm. by I think it's Tim Grover. Grover, Grover. Yeah. Um, so I think he, he used to coach. He's coached like Kobe Bryant, uh, Jordan, uh, Dwayne Wade, and again, I'm not. I'm not actually that big on American sport, but I friggin' love uh, Jordan and just uh, has been, you know, I suppose, his uh, perception of how sports should be played. Yeah. I, I feel it resonates with me really well, but that their book is... <laughs> he, he's um, definitely a competitor, awesome. that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he takes it probably way bit far. Wow, you could argue I do too sometimes. But, <laughs> um, yeah, real cool book is just yeah, different types of athletes and, and what he's come across, but... I, I actually really struggled to put it down. It was a cool read. Awesome, man. Appreciate that and appreciate you coming on. It's been awesome to chat and um, catch up after uh, a fair few years since we probably last spoke. So thanks a lot for your time, mate. Sweet, man. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Stronger Dads Collective podcast. If you gained anything of value, please go ahead and share this episode with someone else that you think may benefit from its content. Also, feel free to follow me on Instagram at hjp underscore stronger dads that's at hjp underscore stronger dads we'll see you on the next one